2: America has a legacy that has been hugely impactful on making democracy better, but we're no longer the leader on this.
3: What is striking is actually how well the institutions of democracy in America have performed.
0: Hi everybody, I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared US. And today, a debate about reputation and not the reputation of a person, an individual. The reputation of the United States of America after January 6th, that appalling assault by American citizens against literally the very seat of American democratic government, the U.S. Capitol. Where does America's reputation stand as of today as a model of democracy to the rest of the world? Has that reputation survived? Was it there to begin with? Was it exaggerated? And Can it be taken away by one president and civilians on a rampage? I have two guests with me, two debaters, who will examine these questions from what we know going in will be competing points of view. I want to welcome Corey Shockey, currently at AEI, who has a distinguished career in government, spanning the Defense Department and the State Department and the White House. And also Brian Klass, a political scientist and host of the Power Corrupts podcast. Corey and Brian, thank you so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared.
2: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we get started, I want to ask you a very short series of yes, no questions, a little bit of a questionnaire just to stake out the ground we'll be covering and to find out early on where you agree and, and where you disagree. So just a yes or no to these four questions. You can elaborate on them later on. So the first one comes just from a historical perspective. Here it is. Has the U.S., not now, but at any time in the past, been seen outside its borders as a a beacon of democracy that inspires imitation. Corey? Yes. And Brian? Yes. Okay, two yeses on that one. Now, a couple of questions in the Does It Really Matter category. The first one Is it in the interests of the American people for the United States to be seen that way around the world? Corey? Yes. Brian? Yes. All right, another Does It Matter question Is it in the interests of the global community for the United States to be seen that way around the world? Corey? Yes. And Brian? Yes. And finally, here's the question about the moment we are in right now. And it's the heart of the debate we're going to be having today in 2021. In this moment, does American democracy have the resilience to continue standing before the rest of the world as a model of democracy? Corey? Yes. And Brian? No. All right, there's our dividing line. The yes no is on this question of whether, in this moment, American democracy can continue standing with the same resilience before the rest of the world as a model of democracy and an inspiration. So, I want to get this started by giving each of you a few minutes to tell us the core of your argument. So, Corey, you are arguing, yes, the U.S. is a model of democracy for the rest of the world. And what's your argument? Take a couple of minutes with it, please.
3: My argument is that the United States has never been a perfect democracy, has failed in enormous ways repeatedly and over time with the existence of slavery, uh, with Jim Crow laws, with the failure of reconstruction, with the limits of female franchise, uh, with the requirement for the forcible integration of American schools there are a number of ways in which the United States has always been imperfect and failed. And yet the aspiration to be a more perfect union is a big part of why the United States is a model. We're not good at having it right, we're good at getting it right. Um, The second argument I would make is that as shocking as it has been to see the president of the United States incite violence in a mob to try and prevent the peaceful transition of power, to try and prevent the counting of the electoral votes by the Congress. That's terrible, it's shocking. It's a very dark day for democracy in America and we will have an enormous amount of work to do to steady, stabilize, and strengthen democracy in America. But I think there shouldn't be doubt that that's what's occurring and that the, the reaction of Americans to what the president has done will strengthen democracy in America. The third argument I would make is that as trying as the four years of Donald Trump's presidency have been for the United States, calling journalists enemies of the people, trying to cast into doubt the the electoral outcomes, the efforts to uh, corrupt election officials in Georgia and elsewhere. What is striking is actually how well the institutions of democracy in America have performed despite that enormous pressure. Journalists have not hesitated to do their jobs. Uh, elect, state electoral officials, secretaries of state across the country, Republican and Democrat, have exercised their offices with integrity despite enormous pressure from President Trump and his supporters. Uh, judges have have adjudicated the law, not their political preferences in the 64 lawsuits that President Trump and his supporters have brought. The American military has reinforced its its subordination to civilian control and its, its oath to the constitution. And so in closing, I would say that the way that American institutions of democracy have held in this authoritarian moment is cause for the United States as a model democracy for others.
0: All right. Thank you, Corey Shocking. And um, Brian Class. it's your turn to tell us your argument against the statement that's before us that the United States still stands in a resilient way as a model of democracy.
2: Thanks. It's, you know, it's, it's very depressing to make this case because I, I firmly believe in American democracy and I want it to be a model for the world. And I think the easy out here is to just focus on Donald Trump, because he's such an emblem of everything that's wrong with American democracy, that it's the easiest way to make this case. But there's a deeper problem that I'm going to make the harder case, which is that I think there's structural problems with American democracy that don't go away on January 20th when Donald Trump leaves the White House. So I think think there's two aspects of this. The first is something that political scientists like myself, scholars of democracy, called input legitimacy or procedural legitimacy. That's a fancy way of saying how policy gets made in democracies. And I think that system is fundamentally broken. To put it in a simple context, let's do a quick thought experiment. Let's imagine we poll 100 people from around the world and we say, you're going to design a democracy from scratch. How many of them would design the electoral college? How many of them would design a Senate in which there's disproportionate representation for tiny states with people with extreme views? How many of them would put money as central to politics or make gerrymandering part of the system? This is not a system that you would design from the ground up. It's a system that's a holdover of a very long time ago in a very particular political moment in American history. And so that aspect of it, I think, is a very big problem. The Electoral College, for twice in, twice in the last 20 years, the person who has won fewer votes has ended up as the president, and we nearly had that for a third time in 2020. The influence of money in politics is insane, right? I mean, people are exercising enormous influence on political decision-making simply because they have deep pockets gerrymandering is a huge problem. I crunched the numbers back in 2016 for the house races, and the average margin of victory in those house races was 37%. In other words, most house races were totally uncompetitive. It was a 70-30 landslide. And what's democracy if not about political competition? And then you also have a political party system that rewards ever more extreme behavior in primaries while moderates get comp- who compromise get squeezed out of the of the system. And then, of course, there's the Senate, where in 20 years from now, two thirds of Americans will have 30 senators representing them, while one third of Americans will have 70 senators representing them. It's not fair, it's not equitable, it's not democratic. And then beyond that, you have what we call output legitimacy, which is basically how things get done and the policy that gets made. And you look at the healthcare system, the extreme inequality, the systemic racism, the fragmented, highly unequal education system. The fact that women only compromise or comprise 23% of the elected officials at the national government compared to the world average of 25%, and the fact that minorities are underrepresented. So, you know, I think that there is a system here that has huge innovations that have radically reshaped democratic processes around the world for the better. And America has a legacy that has been hugely impactful on making democracy better. But we're no longer the leader on this. And I think when people are looking at models, they're looking at countries like Canada, Germany, Japan, the Scandinavian countries, and they're unfortunately no longer looking at the United States.
0: Thank you, Brian and Thank you, Corey Shockey. So I want to dig into some of what we've just heard. And, uh, Brian, you, you, you just made it clear that you took the hard road on this. You could have made this about the events that took place in the first week and a half or so of uh, January, um, the low-hanging fruit. Um so you're taking a harder argument, which is that fundamentally, American democracy is not even living up to the ideals of its own apparatus. And um, I want to take that to Corey Shaki, that the problem is really that the functioning of the democracy on a day-to-day basis is is, is quite compromised. And therefore, that would undermine, and, and therefore, in fact, Brian is saying that um, people outside the world are looking to other places ahead of the United States. So would you take that point, Don?
3: Yeah, and I'll take it specifically in the case of the Electoral College, Uh, because if you disestablish the Electoral College and uh, and don't have a way to balance small states and large states' influence, then everybody in the country is going to live under the rule of California and New York. And that too is unfair. So the genius of the American system of democracy is the way it balances urban and rural uh, and all sorts of other elements. I don't see an improvement over the Electoral College for doing that. I'd love to hear Brian's answer to how do you keep uh, South Dakota from feeling it doesn't have a say in the system when California and New York have the popular standing.
0: So Brian, before you do that, I, I just want to say that, Corey, I didn't have the sense that Brian was hanging his entire argument on the Electoral College in any way, but more the sort of sense that, uh, and, and, and I do want to have him respond to that. But he was talking, I think, in more broadly about things like money and politics uh uh, et cetera. But, but Brian, go ahead and take that. And then I want to move on.
2: Sure. So, I mean, I think with the electoral college, the idea that South Dakota has a big voice, I mean, South Dakota is ignored. If you look at all the campaign stops that presidential candidates make in presidential elections, 90 plus percent of them are in six states in the last four elections. And, you know, nobody goes to Idaho. Nobody goes to South Dakota. People go to the swing states that end up having a disproportionate influence And of course, in the nomination process, you know, we have highly white, highly rural states like uh, Iowa and New Hampshire dictating who ends up being the candidate for the rest of the country. So, you know, in pretty much every other democracy in the world, one person gets one vote and it works even for electing heads of state. The U.S. has a system where in theory that was right. But if it ends up producing results that increasingly encourage the popular vote winner to not actually get into the, into power. The thing that I found, I, I work around the world with fragile democracies and I've gone and been an election observer in su- say, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And when I criticize elections elsewhere, and this is what we're talking about, the model, people throw it back to me and they say, how can you lecture us? The person who gets the most votes in your contest doesn't even win. you know. And, and I, I laughed that off for a long time, but when you add it up with all the other things that I was talking about, at some point, you have to say, "Yeah, of course, the U.S. is a better system than Madagascar or Zambia, where I was doing this." But you know, people who are looking at us are not saying we're the best system; they're saying we're a flawed system, and I think that argument has considerable merit.
0: So, so we're a little bit in the weeds on this, and I think the weeds are an important place to be. They count; they matter. But I want to jump up a little bit, uh, a little bit higher, so we can sort of see the whole field that we're talking about here in terms of our reputation abroad. Um, I want to share my own experience in the 1980s and 1990s. I was a foreign correspondent. I was based in a lot of interesting places. I was I lived in Russia. I lived in the Middle East. I lived in Israel. I covered the Arab world. I covered Eastern Europe as it was falling apart. And the thing that really astounded me as a young man was that the image that we liked to promote about ourselves actually had real sticking power in the places that I went to, I just want to take a moment to bring in the voice of somebody who really captured that image that we had of ourselves, and this was Ronald Reagan making his closing Oval Office speech to the nation in uh, nineteen. Uh, it would have been nineteen eighty nine, and the way he described who he saw who we are.
3: I've spoken of the shining city all my political life
0: but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city, built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it, and see it still. So that was a, a, a vision of America, put forth by Ronald Reagan, that I think a lot of people found heartening. Certainly, there are many, many Americans who found it hollow. But what I found traveling the world at that point, in places like refugee camps uh, where where Palestinians were living after being ex- expelled from from Israel, uh, from the from the land that became Israel. And and who even in my interviews with them would complain bitterly about the policy of Ronald Reagan and about the support for Israel that the United States provided would nevertheless say to me, "But we know the American people are good. We know it's a real democracy. We know the United States stands for freedom." And that that was held so deep, uh, deeply by people who had reasons to, truly to be angry at the United States that it made a huge impression on me. And also in Prague, I stood with a translator who told me in 1989 we were standing outside the American embassy and she pointed to the flag and she said for all of the years that we were under soviet occupation that flag gave us something to believe in that was so powerful and I, and to be honest i felt pride and, and joy that we had that reputation in the world and my question to each of you is was that naive was i be, being naive or was there something real About that standing that we had in the world. I'll go to you first for it, Corey.
3: There was and is something real about that image. And it's not just about the structure of democracy in America and money and politics, it's about the United States being a country that cares about freedom in the world, that's prepared to put its sons and daughters on the line to advance freedom in the world. There are beliefs as a political culture that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments for agreed purposes. Um, the, The city on the Hill that Ronald Reagan was talking about was a city of immigration and integration and one generation safely in the middle class and economic opportunity and dynamism. So we shouldn't so narrowly constrain the United States as a worthwhile cultural, economic, and political model to the narrow elements of how the machinery of our democracy functions because who we are as a freedom loving people, as a people who believe in individual rights and liberty, is also a huge part of why that translator pointed at the flag, John.
0: Brian?
2: I, I agree with most of what Corey said, and I and I think that you know the, the the mythology of the United States, the image of the United States, is broadly correct. Although of course we whitewash quite a lot of things. I mean, you know, there was obviously U.S. sponsored coups in places like Iran and in Chile, et cetera, during the Cold War, where we de- where, where we deliberately and explicitly overturned democratic governments abroad. But those were obviously you know things that are are blemishes on an otherwise, I think, admirable system, particularly in, you know, the last 50 years, if we, if we sort of zoom out to the post-World War II era. And the U.S. built the architecture of, you know, liberalism with a small, you know, the, the idea of democracy, um, you know, throughout the world in that post-war era. My worry is that, this, that that blemish has overtaken the rest of the model and become the thing that most people now focus on when they look at America. And and I you know I say this with a huge amount of regret because again I agree with Corey and I, I feel proud to be an American, but for the last four years living abroad, the first thing that I have to basically convey to people when I open my mouth and they hear my accent is I'm not a Trump supporter, right? Because it's embarrassing when when people are trying to size me up because I'm an American abroad, they're trying to figure out if I'm racist because that's the image they see with the Black Lives Matter protests and the killing of George Floyd from my hometown of Minneapolis. You know, these are things that have made a huge impact on how we're perceived around the world. And I was so utterly depressed when I assigned in my course, my undergraduate course, and I know this is a bit naive, but I assigned the the question, which country poses the greatest threat to the liberal international order, the architecture of the system that sort of underpins everything we believe in with our uh, democracy and freedoms and all those things and the most common answer was the united states and and you know it's not it's not that they're right obviously i think that russia and china and, and american adversaries pose a much bigger threat to the liberal international order and to the values we hold but that was really really remarkable teaching students from western europe who look at us as something that's not just not to be desired but actually an adversary in some in some circles and the german public for example when you poll them uh, you know, has similar views of the United States as they do Russia or China. The the data shows this, so you know we have a cl- we have a massive cleanup job to do, and and I believe in the values. I believe in that in that sort of image of the city on a hill. But I don't think that's how people see us right now.
0: So, so it's so interesting. You were talking about the the. Um the ways in which the United States acted uh, in the past, which could would not be seen as consistent with support for democracy. I had made a list of myself, myself of of dictators that the United States supported, again, during my reporting career. There was Marcos in the Philippines and, and Mubarak in and Egypt and Somoza and Nicaragua and the Shah in Iran and Pinochet in Chile. All, the United States was taking part in all of those things and overthrowing elected democracies often, or, or resisting, uh, supporting people who were pushing back against democracy. And yet, and yet the image still stood that we were kind of, we meant well, we were often kind of the good guys. I think a lot of that stems from the way we treated our defeated uh, foes after World War II. But you're saying, Brian, that that balance, that, that's, that, it, that uh, dynamic by which even if we were doing stuff like that, we were still held in high regard has shifted, am I getting you correctly that that now we, more weight is being given to the things the United States is doing that would be, appear to be undemocratic
2: yeah i th- I think that most people saw us as consistent with some exceptions right that we we stood f- we stood for these values we genuinely cared about them, but we had some blemishes and and those were real and, and we shouldn't we shouldn 't pretend they didn 't exist. But now I think that people only see the blemishes because of how prominent they are and how much of a of a pedestal Donald Trump has been on for the last four years and how visible some of the festering wounds in American democracy uh, have been on display, rotting on display, I would argue, um, for the last four years.
0: So that's a really damning point that I want to take to Corey. So Corey, again, n- neither of you is saying anything is absolute, that we've been all good or all bad. But what Brian is arguing is that the bad, I'm putting that in quotation marks, it's a very inaccurate term, but you know what I mean, has begun to be the thing that defines us more to people out there in the world. And I want you to take on that point, that there's been a big shift, particularly in the last four years.
3: I agree, which is the refutation of Brian's original argument that structural failures of American democracy are the the cause of this. I actually think, you know, those things were not, the United States was seen as a model democracy when Barack Obama was president. And we were seen as an amazing thing that a Black man could get elected president in the United States when in that Black man's lifetime, Blacks were not able to vote without fear in the United States. So I do think this is much more a Trump phenomenon Than a democracy in America phenomenon, because you can measure, let's just measure it in German public attitudes between support for the United States when Barack Obama was president and support for the United States when Donald Trump is. That's not to say that changes aren't worrisome and we have to push back very strongly on them, but I also think American democracy is pushing back very strongly on them. You saw it in the midterm 2018 elections. You saw it in the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and you see it in the way that civil society groups hold government accountable, uh, journalists practice their trade with, with impunity. Those are really important elements of American democracy. And I believe those elements are very strong and vibrant. And when President Biden takes office, um, you will begin to see those attitudes shift again Uh because American democracy very often falters, but we also have the tools in our democracy to fix our problems. And that's what Americans are doing.
0: So, you know, Corey, what's very interesting, I, I want to point out to the members of our audience who may not know this, but you, this is the fifth time that you've appeared on Intelligence Squared, which I think breaks the record. I think you're now a, a more frequent uh, debater than any other debater we've had in the past. So congratulations for that. I'm if, grateful if, if for that not, opportunity. If you're not number one, it's a tie. But it also means that we can quote things you've said in past debates. Um, <laughs> and so you did a debate just at the beginning of uh, Donald Trump's administration where the language was, the resolution was Western democracy is committing suicide or something along those lines. And you were arguing in support of Western democracy. You you said two things that were interesting. The first one was uh, in which you were talking about the one thing that would make you worry about Donald Trump at that point from what you had seen, but you didn't think it would ever happen. Here's what you said.
3: The president's got to get reelected. The courts get a view on everything President Trump does. uh, And he is abiding by those limits. The time I was most worried was when President candidate Trump said that he, you know, wasn't sure what he was going to think about the outcome of the election. That kind of corrosive undercutting of the norms and behaviors that make our practices meaningful is worrisome.
0: All right, I, I'm not bringing that up to to embarrass you because none of us really thought it was going to happen. But exactly the thing happened that you said would worry you if it did happen,
3: and it does worry me. Yeah, absolutely. President Trump has been an enormous danger. To democracy in America, and uh, I I'm grateful that the strictures, the institutions of democracy in America have held.
0: Well, let, like, let, let, let me let me stop barely. you there because because that's another point you made during that debate about Western democracies in general. So, Brian, I want you to listen closely to this because I'd like you to respond to what Corey is saying then because it also is what she's saying now.
3: We think it's a lot less brittle than you think it is. And I would just use from the American case, we have two precedential examples. There uh, are similar times in the 1820s and the 1880s where you have rapid technological change that roils American politics and throws these populist political leaders up. Andrew Jackson for example, much greater threat to the institutions and practices of democracy in America than Donald Trump ever was. But the great thing about democracies is that you turn the key in the lock, his adversaries found ways to create um, counter arguments, and the same thing happens in the 1880s, you get populists coming forward, and then you get the problems that were driving people to populism Addressed by democratic means.
0: So so what I find really interesting there, Corey, and I want Brian to respond to this, is that Corey is saying that the system corrects, that they're there uh, and it's resilient. And she's saying that after January 6th, we've seen that. Those civilians did not take over the government. They did not succeed in stopping the certification of Joe Biden as president. The they're, they're, that movement at the moment at least at least temporarily, seems to be uh, on the run. And that this what we've just gone through is an example of the resilience of our democracy and she takes hope in that and also I think is making the case that it establishes that what we're going through now is more of a blip than a trend. So can you take that that on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with the idea that they're that the people who led the insurrection are on the run. A lot of them are in Congress. You know, one of them's still in the White House. Over a hundred House Republicans voted to overturn the results of a democratic election. Now, the fact that they didn't is better than if they had. But I mean, what other Western democracies are facing that level of threat right now? Right? I mean, you don't have this happening in Canada or Germany or Japan. So when I think about democracy, I always use the analogy of a sandcastle, which is basically that anybody can make a very small, very basic sandcastle. Any idiot can do that. That's holding an election. To build a massive prize-winning sandcastle takes decades, but they can get torn down very, very quickly, or they can erode over time, right? As a wave sort of comes up and knocks part of it down and you have to repair it. What I think has happened in the last four years has been a serious wave. It doesn't mean the sandcastle's gone. We still have democracy in the United States, but the institutions are weakened. And yes, they've held. I mean, we still have courts, but the courts are politicized. They're stacked with loyalists to Donald Trump. They're stacked with people who have been repeatedly deemed to be unqualified, and many of whom have never even tried a case. There was even a ghost hunter was nominated by Donald Trump to be a judge. I mean, this does damage over time, right? And I think at some point we have to recognize that it's not a binary. It's not just democracy or no democracy. It's, has our democracy been severely damaged? And I think one of the key things that I always point out is that people matter in this equation, right? So institutions are not some random thing that just exists on paper as an abstract. They are they are combinations of people. And if a significant chunk of the major political party in the United States, one of the major political parties in the United States, the Republicans, is cheering for authoritarian behavior, is cheering for people who are trying to overturn the election based on lies and conspiracy theories, and has a political base behind them that is pushing them to get ever more extreme, that's not a recipe for a healthy democracy, and it's not a recipe that's going to create uh, any sort of positive change after Donald Trump leaves either because that's still baked in, right? So so my my worry is that Yes, we've held so far, but the toxic dynamics of the Trump presidency are not just about Donald Trump. There's something much deeper. And I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle of tens of millions of people who are conspiracy theorists, some of which support violent insurrectionists, and that they have significant representation in the halls of Congress, and that those people are putting uh, unqualified loyalists, partisan loyalists, Into a system of rule of law, which is the bedrock
0: uh, of democratic systems. And Brian, do you think that that image that you're portraying there is the one that's traveling around the world about us now, to to a degree that it's seriously undermining to our standing?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, when you consume international news, what makes it through? The things that make it through are the crazy Trump tweets, the crazy Trump behavior, the, the the things where you know crowds of people are chanting, "Lock her up." The things where crowds of pro-Trump supporters are storming the Capitol and killing people, this makes it through. I mean, this is top news in the world everywhere. And so, what's not making it through are, you know, the fact that the courts are humming along, or the fact that you know we still have a democratic system. The the the, the image that's being broadcast to the world and has been broadcast to the world for the last four years is utterly, utterly damning. And we we do look like a laughing stock to most people, even in our allies. And I think the cleanup job for that is not going to take months. It will take years and possibly decades.
0: Let me, um, you are mentioning some of what the comments are around the world, and I know you're talking at a cultural level, but I want to l- look a little bit at the political level in in listening to some of what uh, our allies are saying at the leadership level. So here was a comment um, on Friday by Canada's prime minister, Justin Trudeau. What we witnessed was an assault on democracy. By violent rioters, incited by the current president and other politicians, as shocking, deeply disturbing, and frankly saddening, as that event remains, we've also seen this week that democracy is resilient in America. So that was um, Justin Trudeau, and here is the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson.
1: All all my life, America has stood for some very important things: an idea of freedom and an idea of democracy, and uh, as, you, as you say, as you suggest, insofar as uh, in, he encouraged people to uh, storm the, the Capitol and insofar as the, uh, the president consistently has cast doubt on uh, the outcome of a free and fair election, I, I believe that that was completely wrong. I think what President Trump has uh, been saying about that has been uh, completely wrong. And I, and I unreservedly condemn Uh, encouraging people to behave in the disgraceful way uh, that they did in the capital. And all I can say is I'm very pleased that the president-elect has now been uh, properly confirmed, duly confirmed uh, in office and and that democracy has prevailed. And this is Emmanuel uh, Macron,
0: the the, uh, French president.
1: I just wanted to express our friendship and our faith in the United States. What happened today in Washington, D.C. is not America, definitely. We believe in the strength of our democracies. We believe in the strength of American democracy.
0: So, and Macron was doing that also in the context of condemning what had happened at the Capitol. And the reason I found all of these interesting, Corey and Brian, is that all three of them make the case that yes, the United States is the uh, a model of democracy, an important model of democracy. And all three of them say, and I'm glad to see that democracy prevailed, which I think, Corey, kind of gives ammunition to your side from their perspective that uh, there was a challenge and the challenge was met. So can you respond to, to that? And I want to let Brian respond to some of that as well.
3: So uh, I will... Uh, give a little strength to Brian's side of the argument in acknowledging that, yes, they all did express their relief that democracy prevailed, but they're also partly trying to strengthen the forces of democracy in the United States. And that's a measure of how worried they are by how close run the current success of democracy is in the United States. And it is very worrying. I, John, I, I take your point, which is that they are all acknowledging the United States is an important standard. This was a challenging test and the U.S. has passed it. But that they are trying to push along the forces of structural democracy in the United States and put their shoulder to the wheel to help them actually also shows how much damage has been done. And Brian? Well, I'll play the
2: same game and, and go on Corey's side a bit here because <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's, it's unequivocally true that the US is the most powerful democracy in the world. And some of, the, some of the comments reflect that, right? They're trying to sort of, uh, you know, be praising an ally that's very, very important. But the reason they're doing that is because as the most powerful democracy in the world, which other country is going to actually put geopolitical weight behind democracy if not the United States, right? I mean, we are in a global political battle, an ideological battle with China, for example, and in the in the developing world you know even though the us's image has been tarnished the us is the only real force that can push back against the chinese model that has made major inroads in places like southeast asia sub-saharan africa and latin america so you know while i lament the damage that's been done it is unequivocally true that the as the most powerful democracy in the world that model must be fought for and it's why it's so important that Biden tries to pick up the pieces and repair the damage because if it's not us who else will it be
0: yeah it's it's interesting you you bring in china into it again going back to my experience overseas all the soft power imagery was, was part of a propaganda war at that time between the United States and the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union was constantly calling American democracy hollow, based primarily on uh, um, things like uh, poverty, homelessness, racism. And I, I'm seeing quotes from around the world now, again, from adversaries or n- nominal, if not real, adversaries, reacting to last week. So uh, this is uh, Konstantin Kosachov, who um, is the chair of Russia's uh, upper house's uh, foreign affairs committee, and he posted on Facebook: "It is clear American democracy is limping on both feet. The celebration of democracy has ended." It has unfortunately hit rock bottom, and I say this without a hint of gloating, America no longer charts the, co- the course and so has lost all right to set it, and even more so to impose it on others. The government of Venezuela condemns the acts of violence, I'm quoting now, that took place today in Washington, D.C., and reminds that U.S. foreign policy constantly promotes these policies of aggression against legitimate democratic process worldwide. Iran's president, this proves Western democracy is a failure, so he takes it beyond the United States to all of Western democracy, because democracy is not really their thing. Um, This kind of goes to your point, Brian, that this is an enormous propaganda coup for the other side by being able to depict our democracy as enormously flawed. So can you run with that a little bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we wrote the script for them, right? I mean, they've been trying to make this argument for a long time because, of course, their ideologies are bankrupt. They're authoritarian and their their abuses are, you know, they, they make the United States look like it's perfect in comparison. I, I think the problem, of course, is that China has seduced people. It has seduced countries to follow its path. And this myth that's made out of Chinese the Chinese model, that if you just have our version of authoritarianism, you'll grow quickly and have no problems, has been one that you know self-serving autocrats in places like Africa have run with because it helps them too. They don't have to hold really competitive elections. They say, we just need to be like China. But that's why it's so, so important that we get this right, because we need to be the, the, the competitive model. We need to be the one that's winning that argument the way that we were in, in the 1990s, After there was no ideological alternative, and Francis Fukuyama famously called it the end of history because we beat the Soviet Union, we won the argument, not just vanquishing them, but also convincing people that liberal democracy was the way forward and the United States was the model for it. And you know, if 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 we lose that argument with China, which you know on, on its merits we should never lose, but if we somehow manage to bungle that. Uh, the consequences, not just for the U.S. but for the world, will be extremely dire. And you're you're absolutely right. The insurrection was a huge gift to propagandists in awful regimes around the world who say, uh, you know, how can they lecture us? And it doesn't have to be that way. But it, but but at the moment, um, you know, if we compare ourselves to, as I say, some of these other liberal democracies in Western Europe, they're looking a lot better than us. They just don't have the might to actually promote democracy in the rest of the world the same way we do.
0: Corey. Um- we heard in the aftermath of what happened a number of people say again our leaders saying this is not who we are this is not this is not represent what America is which again I think goes to our our own self-image that we're the good guys um we in the United States are the good guys and I I heard an interesting pushback on that from Sam Sanders who's an NPR journalist I respect who has a podcast called it's been a Minute um, I believe that's the name of his podcast and he wrote a piece Saying no, that is us, and we have to stop we have to stop pretending that what happened is not part of us and He was interviewed about that on nPR and here's a little just a little bit of his argument you know, I think that since this country's founding, America
2: has been a country built on racial hierarchy and exploitation and subjugation.
1: And a lot of that history is still present, and we don't want to talk about it or examine just how big of a factor race is in American life still in 2021. And flashpoints like the insurrection last week are just the latest chapter in a book that we've been writing for decades and centuries now.
0: So where I want to go with that question is to take up also the point that Brian was making and saying that especially with the protest that took place after the death of George Floyd, um, that that was another one of these gifts that has, has traveled to the world, to our adversaries, to our enemies, to tell a different story about who we are. We have that on top of what happened on January 6th at the state capitol. Brian making the argument that there's a really powerful counter-narrative about, out there in the world now about who we are greatly exacerbated by uh, the assault on the Capitol, that that truly undermines the notion that we're functioning as a democracy. And Sam Sanders' point is that uh, it's too easy to say no, we're good and, and we're a democracy and everything's functioning when you bring up when you bring the issue of race into it, and that that is an enormous liability for the argument we want to make out there in the world that we're an exemplar, we're a model to be emulated, that we're an inspiration. What about that?
3: I agree with him that it's too blithe and too self-affirming to look at the violent insurrection and its racial undercurrents that occurred in January in the Capitol. It's too blithe, it's too self-serving to say that's not who we are. That's part of who we are. And it's always been part of who we are. But as that great chronicler of America, Walt Whitman said, we are vast, we contain multitudes. And this, the real center of gravity for admiration of the United States is the acknowledgement of our failures and working to common purpose to solve them. And I think the United States is still easily capable of that. And in fact, the George Floyd protests demonstrate that, that millions of Americans turned out to protest police brutality against Black Americans and to demand something better, and that those protests were overwhelmingly peaceful. And it was not just Black Americans demanding different and better, but that the murder of George Floyd turned the hearts of very many white Americans, that we had been averting our eyes from systemic racism that is something our fellow Americans who are people of color live in constant awareness and fear of. The the fact that you see police departments all over the country right now looking to see were any of their members participants in the violent insurrection at the Capitol? And what are we going to do about that? The mechanisms of American democracy have the ability to address these problems. And as the founder of the American public school system, Horace Mann put it, Education is our only political safety. Outside that arc is deluge. And I think you see in the, in the tumult that the United States is experiencing, us wrenching our democracy to a better place. And even if our adversaries are getting enormous, um, are having fun, uh, highlighting our failures, The difference between us and our adversaries is a willingness to acknowledge them and to use the tools of free societies to repair free society.
0: What a time this has been. There has been so much going on in the news, a lot of debate out there that needs to be had in our country right now. And this spring, we at Intelligence Squared will be hosting live virtual debate on everything from how the government can end this pandemic to facial recognition technology. You can hear those debates right here on our podcast feed, or you can watch them live as they're happening online. You can be part of it, chatting with other fans of the show in real time, submitting questions to our debaters, which I will take to the debaters in real time, right on the spot. To subscribe to our weekly newsletter and get special members-only invitations to our live events, visit iq2us.org. That's IQ, the number two, US.org. The link is also in our show notes. Now back to Corey Shockey and Brian Klass on American Democracy. Brian Klass, before the break, Corey was making a point that I think you want to get back to.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with what she's saying about how there are mechanisms to correct uh, all of the problems that exist in America. And we were talking about George Floyd. And I think that this is a absolute crystal, uh, crystal clear part of where we disagree. So, George Floyd was murdered in my hometown of Minneapolis. He was killed in my hometown of Minneapolis. And when you look outside the world, to the rest of the world, we do contain multitudes. I'm from Minneapolis. I tell people about all the multitudes within us. But what do people think of me when I tell them I'm from Minneapolis? They think that's the place where the cop killed George Floyd. I tell them, you know, we have, my representative in Congress is a Muslim refugee from Somalia. We gave the world prints and post-it notes. The world doesn't (laughs) know that. They know that George Floyd is from Minneapolis. And that's what's happened to our democracy, is that the good bits don't make international news. The multitudes don't make international news. The bad stuff for the last four years has, and that's why the Cleanup Act, I think, is going to be so long.
0: Corey, what if Brian's right, and that's all true, that that's what's making the news? That's the story that's being told. What's the damage there? It is
3: the story that's being told, and it's the story that should be told, right? The murder of George Floyd is huge news, um, and the United States needs to fix its problems. But our, but I don't think it's true that nobody knows who his representative is or the significance that she could get elected in the United States. And that that too is our story. I, I think sometimes the volume of the bad stuff is so loud that we don't hear the other uh, more positive things. But that doesn't mean that nobody sees them. I, I think, as I was saying before, a big part of the attractiveness of the United States isn't the mechanics of democracy in America so much as a political culture that also elects Somali refugees to the American Congress. And that creates. Uh, economic opportunity and social integration and all sorts of great things. So I don't think it's true that only the negative gets, gets through. I think the positive also gets through just not so loudly at the moment, and it actually shouldn't get through as loudly at the moment. We have big problems to fix,
0: Brian. I want to circle back because Corey was just doing it to a little bit of your opening argument, where you were talking about the apparatus of democracy as it currently functions in the United States. Um, you talked about the Electoral College. Um, you did not talk about the the time when senators were uh, cho- were not chosen directly by by the public, but that was for a good long run in American history. The, the system was set up because the the founders feared out of control democracy um they they basically feared mob mentalities and mob action we've just come through a period where we saw a mob behaving as they did um is part of your critique that that some of the restrictions that the founders put on place in the first place uh were 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 problematic in themselves for example you know political parties have chosen to go to a primary system the primary system gave us who we got um, is that part of what you see as the problem here is that the that the apparatus has been tinkered with too much or not enough.
2: Well, I think the apparatus and the checks and balances are are the most important innovation that American democracy has produced and, you know, constraining various aspects of government is what really does create resilience in democracies, which is evidenced by how stable American democracy has been broadly for the last, you know, several hundred years. But I do think that some of the mechanisms of democracy in America are outdated. And the mechanisms to change them are simply impossible in a hyperpolarized world where we don't agree on anything. And so trying to get, you know, a constitutional amendment is basically impossible. I mean, th- think about the pardon power, for example, right? Written into the constitution, nearly unlimited, nearly no restrictions on it. You know, if you try to say, let's pass a constitutional amendment that the president cannot pardon himself or any of his, you know, family members or immediate criminal associates, Most people in America, Republican and Democrat, would agree with that. Is that ever going to be enacted? Probably not, right? Because the mechanisms of reform are so difficult. Now, that has a positive, which means you don't have knee-jerk reactions. But it also means that some of the things that are genuinely outdated about American democracy that have been updated in other parts of the world as democracies have evolved have simply been the same as they always were in the United States. And I think... You know, that, that's one of the, the real things that we're going to have to contend with is that I agree with Corey that, that Obama, the Obama era was a beacon of hope and a model for the, for the world for American democracy. So it is partly about Trump, but also some of these longstanding festering wounds of American democracy are only becoming visible because of Trump. So they were papered over when things sort of worked and when we had the first black president and when other things were, were moving in the right direction. When you had a person who broke the system, as Donald Trump did, all of the broken things that already existed in the system were exposed for all to see. And that's why I don't think it's just about Trump. I think there's something much deeper there.
0: Bottom line, do you think that we are sending out the message that the American public can be counted on to make wise choices through the processes that we have in place and that that message is enhancing our... Or, or perhaps the opposite—the impression that we're giving as a functioning democracy. Corey, I'll go to you first on that.
3: Well, um, you know, the United States isn't newly a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians. Um, we have always been that to some extent. Anybody can get elected president in the United States if they catch the wave at the right moment. We have a very responsive political system, but we also have the ability. And that system fundamentally relies on the good judgment of Americans. And there's only so much you can do in the American political system to shield us from our own choices, as we're seeing in the Trump administration. But what you also see is the good judgment of the American public. If you think about the three uh, things, three policies that candidate Trump campaigned on, restricting immigration, uh, that trade is bad for America and that alliances uh, serve our allies and not us. President Trump's genius politically was asking first order questions. Why don't allies do more for their own defense? And Americans responded to that in 2016. But what you have seen in public polling by, for example, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs is American attitudes have shifted and you see that shift reflected in congressional and presidential elections where attitudes shifted hugely and Americans, now that they have seen the President Trump's solutions to those answers to those questions in action, they've changed their minds and they want something different, and that's what makes me so confident that the apparatus of American democracy has the resiliency and the ability to solve our current problems.
0: And Brian, on the same question,
2: well, I think I think that's where we disagree because the reality of the 2020 election is that if you put enough people to fill a football stadium uh, and change their votes, you would have Donald Trump get reelected, right? If they were in the right states. So, you know, we're in a situation where we very narrowly averted four more years of Trump. And, and 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 to be clear, four more years of someone who showed himself to be over and over a racist, someone who didn't believe in the institutions of democracy. And the reason that he nearly won despite losing the popular vote by around 7 million votes, I believe it was, is because of the institution that's archaic. So, you know, to to my mind, we have a, a, a compounding problem that uh, even when Americans in their wisdom make the right call, the institution can derail them. You know, most people want stricter gun control. They, 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 don't, they don't want to ban guns, but they want some movement on gun control. The Senate has effectively made that impossible. So, you know, there there are mechanisms by which the popular will, which does shift and does get responsive and does actually learn from its mistakes, is stymied repeatedly by some of these arcane institutions that end up entrenching views that are simply minority extremist views and that's what I that's what I really worry about going forward that Biden's presidency will be a massive course correction but it won't be a course correction that follows the, the majority will on a huge number of topics because a minority that's elected by a minority is going to wield disproportionate political power in the institutions that we are stuck with for the foreseeable future. And that's why I am more pessimistic, even though I think Corey and I diagnose similar problems.
0: Brian, thank you for that. And, and Corey Shockey, thank you as well. Um, Corey, it's great to have you these many times on Intelligence Squared. And Brian, when we return to a world when we're all in the same room together, we would love to have you on our stage to debate because you brought so much um, insight and intelligence to this conversation, as both of you did. So I, I want to thank you for, um, for debating, for debating in a respectful way, and also for shedding light, giving us really something to think about. So Corey and Brian, thank you very much.
3: Thank
2: you. Thank you.
0: And thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, which was recorded on January 12th, 2021. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit funded generously by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Mary Dewey and Damon Whittemore are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.